This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 4, Grand Park. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Hope you all had a great week. Mine started off really amazing. I was getting lots of love and positive reviews about the podcast. I've had the sweetest, most sincere messages, notes, texts, posts, and it was just overwhelming. I kept joking that I felt like I was going through the week wrapped in like a cloud of love or something. Now, That all changed a little bit because a few nights ago, I got in a really bad car accident. Um, Someone ran a red light and totaled my car. Now, the good part is that I was by myself. My daughter was not with me, um, but I did break my wrist. So I had a lot of firsts this week. I had my first ambulance ride, my first broken bone. I'm about to have my first surgery and my first time being put to sleep under anesthesia. So some of those I'm a little scared about and uh, it should heal okay. So just to kind of let you know, it's been a little crazy this week. I did not plan on recording my episode the day before I released it. I also broke my right hand, so editing this should be really interesting, and uh, I'm basically just asking for kind of like a pass on this episode if that's possible. So not to be super depressing, because again, I am happy that it could have been a lot worse and that no one else was hurt. So today, we are going to talk about Grand Park, and Grand Park has a special place in my little history heart because this was the first tour that I was supposed to lead. When I first started volunteering with the Atlanta Preservation Center about seven years ago, deep down, I really wanted to do Auburn Avenue, but I doubted myself, and I think I felt a little insecure about a white girl sharing the history of Black Atlanta. Um, I had not as much self-confidence, and I was scared, so I decided to plan B it and learn about Grant Park. And I do not want to make Grant Park sound like a consolation prize, because it wasn't. I was really excited about that as well, and it was actually hard for me to choose between the two. So I decided to go with Grant Park. Interestingly enough, the universe had other ideas, because I found out I was pregnant just about a month after finishing my guide training. And I figured that a pregnant walking tour guide through hilly Grant Park was probably not the best idea. So I put the whole thing on the back burner. And moms out there can relate to this. I did not pick up this hobby until three years after that. So my daughter was about two years old when I slowly started to get back into my interests. And when I went back to the preservation center, I was enthusiastically welcomed to do the Sweet Auburn tour. And now four years later, as they say, the rest is history. Now back to Grand Park. This episode is was going to be really long. So I had to edit a lot out of it and it was I was dying inside doing it because I was really excited to talk about Girls High and the Atlanta Stockade. But there is so much information that I needed to edit it and be a little bit more concise. And don't worry because I moved those other things into future episode categories. But it's broken out into kind of three sections because when you talk about Grand Park, there's the actual park itself There's the historic Grant Park neighborhood, and then there is the man named Grant. So I'm going to start with Grant because we wouldn't have any of these without him. Lemuel P. Grant, or LP as I'm going to call him, was born in Maine in 1817 and educated as an engineer. As an adult, he began working for the Philadelphia Railroad, and in 1840, he was hired as an assistant in the Georgia Railroad's Corps of Engineers. 
Now, you have to remember, when he got down to Atlanta, it was not Atlanta. It wasn't even called Marthasville yet. That would happen two years after. So he gets down here and there's not much to see. There's large swaths of land for him to choose from. The forest removal of Native Americans had already occurred, and the Trail of Tears had occurred just, I think, a year prior. So by the time he purchases his land in 1844, as so many other railroad people did, he was able to purchase a lot of acreage for cheap. I think he paid about under $2 an acre. Two years after that, he bought more land, which would bring his total land holdings to 600 acres. What's funny is that in 1850, when city officials were scouring the countryside to look for new city cemetery land, it was actually LP's six acres that they purchased to create the new Atlanta graveyard, which, if it sounds familiar, it's because it was renamed Oakland Cemetery in 1872. So now the borders of the official Grant Park neighborhood actually stretch out um, past Memorial to encompass the entire Oakland Cemetery. In 1843, he marries Laura Loomis Williams of Decatur, whose family owned most of the land in what is now considered downtown Atlanta. Her dad was a Yankee, just like Grant, except he was from Connecticut, and um, what lured him down south is when Dahlonega, Georgia had its gold rush, he moved his family down. So even though Laura was born in Georgia, she had some Yankee roots, and maybe that's why she married a Yankee husband. He and Laura had four children together, and they built their grand mansion in 1857. So right in the middle of all the 600 acres, they built a beautiful house. It was three stories high, over 8,000 square feet. It had nine fireplaces, six bedrooms, a ballroom. And the story is that the family owned the very first piano and the very first horse carriage in Atlanta. Now, LP was a really good guy, especially for a rich white man in the antebellum South. There is really nothing shocking that I'm going to share about him. There's actually a bunch of really shocking, nice things that I found about him. He was considered the founding father of Atlanta. A lot of people say he was responsible for um, making the train tracks actually go into what is now considered Atlanta. He was responsible for growing Atlanta and making it a transportation center. He was an education advocate. He actually became a member of Atlanta's first board of education and he was very active in the 1870s in establishing the first public school system in the city as well. Before the Civil War, he donated land to the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Atlanta for them to build a church on Jenkins Street. Now, during the war, the army took over their church, used it as a hospital, and then it was damaged by the Union troops. When the war ended, Grant actually went and bought that land back and presented it back to the church, asking them if they wanted it. Now, they graciously declined, and instead they said, they wanted to build a church on Auburn Avenue. That church is Big Bethel AME. So pop quiz for you guys. If you listen to episode two, you know what I'm talking about. And now you know even more about that church. Now, speaking of the Civil War, one year after the war begins, LP is made a colonel in the Confederate Army. And then that same year happens to be when Atlanta becomes a military post under martial law. So by late 1863, early 1864, they commission Grant to design and build a system of defensive fortifications around the entire city. He was in charge of planning a system or a series of 17 redoubts. And now this was a new vocabulary word for me. I had never heard it and I had to look it up. But a redoubt is a temporary or supplementary fortification. Um, so what the idea is basically forming this circle to protect the city, and most of the time it's uh, made of earthen work, so dirt, sticks, things like that. Now he named these 17 forts after alphabet letters. So they were forts A to Q, and they formed a 10 to 12 mile circle. 
In addition, they also did a line of battlements, also a new vocabulary word. A battlement is a parapet at the top of a wall that has regularly spaced openings for shooting. Now you know. Um, but they built one of these battlements along the Chattahoochee River because the Chattahoochee River kind of formed a natural moat around portions of the city. Now this was really hard work. You're digging miles of trenches, building walls, redoubts through all kinds of terrains, woods, fields, roads. This is basically one of the largest public work projects in the history of the South. Now, when it came to labor, there were very few white men available to build it. So all of the white men were at war. Grant had to turn to local slave owners, asking them for permission to use their slaves. Um, that was certainly not enough, and he ended up he ended up requiring a, a mandatory quota of slaves from surrounding counties shipped in. Now that was still not enough, and eventually he put an order throughout southern Georgia that gave slave owners two days to fill this mandatory quota. So all of these earthenworks were built by slaves. Now I read a little further about it. Um, I didn't want to include all, too much information about it, but they were fed a standard Civil War ration. But once the white troops that were fighting were running out of food, these slaves were basically starving. So a lot of deeper conversation to have about this. But like I said, I could have gone on another 20 minute tangent. Now this brings us to one spot inside Grand Park that I want to talk about right now. It's located in the southeastern corner and it's called Fort Walker. This is the last remaining pieces of this line of defense that Grant designed. Now the spot that is called Fort Walker now was one of kind of 20 or so high points that they picked. And you can see when you go out there that you're on a high ridge. It originally had a letter name, just like the others, but after the death of um, Confederate General William Walker in the Battle of Atlanta, they renamed it. Now, this man died about a mile from here, so it was appropriate to sort of rename this piece. Another fun fact is Walker was an Atlanta native, but he was actually a graduate of West Point Military Academy. And I only bring that up because I grew up in the town next to West Point, so I took many field trips there as a kid, and I feel like I can't escape it because all that history is coming back at me now. If you've never been to Fort Walker, it's very, very easy to miss. Um, miss what it even is, and I, as a self-proclaimed war history hater, had a really hard time noticing it at first. But if you get to that spot and you can see the, the way the earth is shaped and what it means, stand in that spot and try to put yourself either in the mind of the slave that is forced to move all of this dirt, or the soldiers that are hiding behind this mound, um, basically trying to save their own lives. If you can get to that place, you can really connect with the landscape that much more. Now, as far as how well these fortifications actually did their job when the war came is another story. Grant was an engineer. Um, he had no military experience. He was pretty unfamiliar with the logistics of the fortifications, and that had some consequences. So the distance between this fortified line and the city center was less than the range of the cannons, Is that if that makes sense. So basically what happened is in July of 1864, the Union forces were able to cannonade, um, you know, throw cannons at Atlanta without ever breaching or testing these fortifications. Now, obviously that didn't go well. Atlanta surrendered on September 2nd, 1864, and Sherman ordered an evacuation of the entire city. By the time the troops left the city in November, out of 3,600 homes, only 400 remained. 
That's why it's incredible that L.P. Grant Mansion was not only one of these 400 homes that was left, but it's one of the only four antebellum homes left in Atlanta. Yes, there are only four antebellum, that means pre-Civil War, houses left in the city of Atlanta. So during the Civil War, the L.P. Mansion was used as a hospital, and it was not burned by Sherman So the story goes that the soldiers found a Masonic apron in a trunk in the attic, and Sherman's mother had specified to him that he not destroy anything Catholic or anything Masonic. Whatever the reason is, I'm really glad he didn't burn it down because we have very, very few of these resources left. Now, after the war, LP and Laura go back to their home, and Laura Grant dies of pneumonia in 1879. L.P. sells that house, and he builds a second one when he marries Jane Crew, who's actually the widow of one of his good friends. Now, Laura was first buried at Oakland Cemetery, which I think is really fitting since that was literally her homeland. That was the land she owned and had her home on. Now, L.P. and his second wife, however, are buried at Westview Cemetery. And at first, I thought this was a little odd, and I thought, well, you know, maybe Oakland had run out of room. But thanks to my friend Jeff's um, new book on Westview which I'm going to interview him very soon for an episode, I learned that in 1884, L.P. Grant was among the leading citizens to petition the Superior Court of Fulton County to create a Westview Cemetery Association. So basically, L.P. was responsible for creating this new cemetery. And so what he did is he moved his first wife and all of his other family from Oakland to be reinterred in Westview in 1889. My favorite part about this story is that Jane, his second wife, insisted that her first husband should also be moved because she did promise him she was going to be buried next to him. So um, when everyone did pass away, Jane is buried there at Westview between her first husband and her second husband. In later years, Grant's first house had a connection to two famous Atlantans that doesn't really feel like it should connect. So this is going to be a little weird. But Bobby Jones, who is the world's most famous amateur golfer, and Margaret Mitchell, author of Gone with the Wind. And now I have officially mentioned Gone with the Wind, so I am a legit Atlanta history podcast. Bobby Jones was actually born inside the mansion. His mother had pregnancy complications, and she really wanted to be in Atlanta, um, which was much closer than Canton, Georgia, where they lived. They were friends with L.P. Grant's grandson named Brian, and so they lived basically in the house um, throughout her pregnancy. So Bobby Jones was born in one of the back rooms there, and that room is still there, so you are more than welcome to go see it anytime you'd like. Now, Margaret Mitchell bought the mansion in 1941 with the hopes of creating a museum. So she, I think because she wrote Gone with the Wind and was doing that research, she understood that the mansion was a really big deal, that it was still here and what a great example it was um, about earlier history in Atlanta. Now, the problem is that she let her business partner slash friend, Boyd Taylor, live in the house and he let it fall apart. There were two fires there in the 60s, the attic and the wiring completely destroyed. And this story is a lot longer and more dramatic. There's newspaper clippings you can see, but Margaret Mitchell tried suing Boyd um, for the destruction and to get him out of the house, but she lost. And the year after she lost her case is when she died tragically. If you didn't know, a little bonus fact is that Margaret Mitchell died by crossing Peachtree Street and getting hit by a trolley. So Boyd continued sort of squatting in the house um, until he died in 1980, and the house was in a horrific state of disrepair. Thankfully, it was saved in 2001 when it was purchased by the Atlanta Preservation Center, 
Yes, where I volunteer. Um, sadly, it's kind of a shell of the glorious mansion that LP and Laura built, but at least it's something, you know. And it's really just one floor now, but the walls are exposed. You can see um, how the construction was, the building material. They have original window panes. Um, and the address today is 327 St. Paul Avenue. And you are always welcome to stop by there during kind of regular business hours. They welcome visitors. Now, the actual park itself. So Grant Park, in doing my research, I learned that Atlanta's first city park was a very small patch of grass located in current day downtown, really close to where Woodruff Park is now. The city sold the land in 1870 and they were actively hunting for more parkland when L.P. Grant decided to donate 100 acres in 1883. So even though Grant Park wasn't the city's first, it currently holds title as the city's oldest public park and is the fourth largest park in the city. When the land was donated, the city ends up creating the first park commission, and it appoints Sidney Root as the park commissioner. About seven years after Grant's original donation, the city goes out and purchases an additional 44 acres. In 1903, the park commission contracts with the Olmsted brothers. If that sounds familiar, these are the sons of the famous Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park in New York City. So they wanted the sons to create a master plan and a layout for Grant Park. And they had many stone bridges. If you see these old photos, it's very reminiscent of Central Park. So I, I wish I could have seen Grant Park in its original heyday. It was really popular in Atlanta. So by the year of 1900, they tracked they had hosted a million visitors. And Grant, um, L.P. Grant, when he donated this, he placed no racial restrictions in the deed for this park. It was and has always been open to all citizens. Now, the zoo and the cyclorama were a different story and later segregated, but the park was never segregated. As I'm sure everyone knows, Zoo Atlanta is located inside Grant Park. And the story of the zoo, if you've never heard it, is a really great Atlanta story. And I have to share it with you guys today. It all starts with a man named George Gress. Who I found out in my research is from very close to me, my, my hometown in New York. So I feel like I have another New York connection in this story. But Gress came to the South and he was a very successful businessman. And he also had this knack for um, donating a lot to charity. So he would buy things and just give them away. That worked out for us because in 1889, the Hall and Binkley Circus was traveling by train to Marietta, Georgia, when it stalled just south. Now, the circus was experiencing some cash flow problems, and so the whole ordeal stalling, it forced the owner into bankruptcy, and the circus was sort of defunct. So for two weeks, you have a menagerie of animals just stranded on the side of the road, and it became kind of this local attraction. People were just coming out to see these strange animals like jaguars, hyenas, bears, raccoons. Um, there was a gazelle, too. I think there was a lion. So all of these animals are hanging out, and I wish I could have seen that as well. They finally rounded them all up and um, put them on auction. So the entire circus is sold at auction and George Gress is the man that purchases a lot. Now he mainly wanted the train equipment but it was a package deal and he decides he's going to donate all of the animals to the city of Atlanta. City officials said you know thanks I guess and they decided to put them in Grant Park since they had this newly acquired piece of land. Now, the citizens of Atlanta were thrilled. They started fun drives to get more animals, and that led to this creation of the zoo and also acquiring the very first elephant in 1890, who they named Cleo. 
The zoo continues to operate for about 40 years before the next unique donation comes in. And this is where I get to introduce Asa Candler Jr. Now, the Candler family deserves their very own episode. And, I mean, I think Asa Candler Jr. deserves his very own episode. Uh, But I did find out in my research that there is a book coming out about him, and I'm very excited to read that. To give you a very edited background story, Asa Candler Sr. is the man that purchased the Coca-Cola formula from John Pemberton the man who invented it, and he turned Coke into a national brand sensation. So he was extremely successful, and as you can imagine, I don't have to explain what Coca-Cola is to any of you guys, so that is how successful he was. He had um, five children, four sons and one daughter, and around 1919 is when he transfers all of his shares of Coca-Cola to these kids. Now they quickly turn and sell the shares of stock, and each of these kids goes on to, you know, they build their mansions, or they get into some kind of business deal. Well, Asa Candler Jr. was a bit of an eccentric, and also a bit of an alcoholic. So, if you can imagine what happens when a rich, eccentric alcoholic gets a nice big dose of money, well, he builds an ostentatious mansion, and he creates a personal zoo. So in 1932, with some of his Coca-Cola buyout, he buys six elephants and he names them Coca-Cola, Paws, Refreshes, Refreshing, and Delicious. I'm not kidding. As you can imagine, his neighbors were less than thrilled. And apparently there was even an incident where an escaped baboon stole and ate $60 out of his neighbor's purse. So Kaler agrees to get rid of these animals, and he donates them to the Atlanta Zoo with the stipulation that the zoo has to raise money to house and maintain them. So this is the first time the zoo has like a big fundraising drive. They welcome the whole lot from Candler, which includes um, the prior named elephants, uh, leopards, water buffalo, elk, zebra, birds, a hyena, a sea lion, and Jimmy Walker, who is the zoo's first tiger. Next door to the zoo is, or I should say was, the cyclorama. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, the cyclorama is a 50 by 400 foot, 18,000 pound circular painting that depicts the 1864 Battle of Atlanta. And it's still hard, I think even when I read about the cyclorama before I saw it, I didn't really understand what it was. But what I tend to find is that in our modern age, we're so inundated with images and media that it's hard to imagine what it was like, let's say in, you know, the 1890s or something, when you didn't have that. So this painting, it created a bit of a 3D effect, but it was amazing thing to see for the people of that time. So it was almost like watching a movie, if you can say it like that. Now, um, the painting was supposed to travel around the country with a presidential candidate. It did not happen because our very good friend George Gress bought it and then donated it to the city. And it was first housed in a wooden building that was built in the park in 1892. And in 1921, they built a much um, fancier big white building where it lived until very recently. Now, I lagged too long in seeing the cyclorama in its original home. I never got around to it when it was in Grand Park, but I did get to take a sneak peek of the restoration that's going on at the Atlanta History Center, which is opening, I think it's February of next year. I appreciate what the History Center is doing. They're restoring it um, to its original size, its original glory, and they're going to put it in the proper context. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they present the story and what they do with this new acquisition, and I will be there in February to see it. Now, something you might not have known was in Grant Park is Lake Abana. 
The six-acre linear lake was the centerpiece of the park, and it was created for stormwater management, but also had natural springs that fed into it. And it used to be pretty much where the parking lot is today. So the next time you're maneuvering some excited toddlers into the zoo, try to picture a really serene lake. (laughs) There was a boathouse at the north end. You could sit in the pavilion, or you could rent a boat and go for a paddle. And there's also kind of a little patch of land in the middle that they named Swan Island. The lake survived into the 1960s, and by that time, the city took a little portion of it and formed it into a public swimming area. And now, I've read the book about Grand Park, I've read so many articles, and all of them avoid or just briefly mention why the lake was drained. And the PC answer is, oh, well, they drained the lake to make more parking for the zoo. But the reality is that they drained the lake because the city did not want to integrate the swimming in Grant Park. So this is about the time that things are being um, pushed to integrate or forced to integrate. And instead of dealing with that, they drained the lake and then, you know, said, hey, you want more parking for the zoo. So that's a longer story as well. But I want everybody to know that fact. I have to admit something, even though I learn so much when I do these episodes, I generally know the basics. I mean, I've been into Atlanta history for over a decade, so I'm not usually surprised, but Grant Park held a surprise for me, and it was called Little Switzerland. Little Switzerland was a private amusement park that opened in 1907 and operated by C.L. Chosewood. So if you know where Parkside Elementary is today, that's where the park was. And it was designed by Julius Hartman, who was the premier amusement park designer of the time. He had just gotten done with the Ponce de Leon amusement park, you know, up the road there a little bit. And Little Switzerland was built as a popular, very popular amusement park in the city. Now, they eventually um, started calling it White City. And that was popular throughout the country um, because of the World's Fair in Chicago. So uh, White City, or Little Switzerland, in Grant Park, had a Ferris wheel, a circle swing, a skating rink, a swimming pool, its own little lake, and a roller coaster that went up to 40 feet high. Now, current day Grant Park has a lot of events and festivals. It's my very favorite farmer's market in the city, and not so much that I go to buy produce there. I just like the feel of it. I mean, my daughter loves the face painter. They have really good food vendors, and it's a, just a, I don't know, it has a good vibe. So I always tell people, if you can, on Sunday mornings, the Grant Park Farmer's Market is the place to be. There are two historic fountains in the park as well, but again, I had to edit myself, so I may even do a special Atlanta Fountains episode. I know, nerd level 100. Now, we've talked about Mr. Grant, we've talked about Grant Park itself, but there's also an entire residential neighborhood named Grant Park, and it covers over 430 acres of southeast Atlanta. LP began subdividing his land in the 1880s, but there's a map in 1893 that shows most of the present-day roads that you see were already designed by them. The larger Victorian mansions um, face the park, and then the more modest homes are in the surrounding streets. The area was populated in the 1890s by mostly middle class and then some upper middle class families. And a lot of the lots, if you notice, are really narrow and they have unpaved alleys in the back. This is because when the neighborhood was built, um, this was still the days when sewage wagons had to have access to your outhouses. I'm very glad those days are over. The neighborhood reached its peak around the turn of the century, 1905. And then after that, the automobile gained popularity, which allowed people to move up. So people moved to Druid Hills, Morningside, Buckhead, and Grand Park remained mostly middle class until the 50s and 60s. And then, um, I think it's in the 1960s, it gets cut, literally cut in half, by a six-lane highway. 
Now, I feel the story of Atlanta's highways certainly deserve their own episode in the future, so I won't get too far into it, but especially I-20 in Atlanta was built for very specific purpose, and the purpose was as a racial dividing line. So many, what was first happening is many of these poor, forgotten neighborhoods, let's say, are getting highways put through them because nobody cares. And I-20 was acting as a line to keep African-Americans below it and then white families above it. Again, I'm saying it in one sentence, I'm not explaining it, but there is a whole book I'm going to talk about in the future. So I-20 rips through Grant Park and completely changes the neighborhood. It really suffered. As, as you can imagine, any neighborhood gets a highway put through it, it's going to suffer. So Grant Park had a little bit of a tough time and it started to re-blossom in the late 80s, early 90s. Now, once you're in the neighborhood walking around exploring, there's a few places I want you to see. The first one is the James Burns Mansion. So this is at 622 Grant Street, and the house is often called the castle, so if you hear it called by that. It's really one of the best examples of Queen Anne Victorian architecture in the city. It was built in 1868, so just a few years after the war, by a Union War veteran named James Burns. Now there is a 55-foot deep well inside the kitchen. It used to be on the porch and then eventually kind of... um, became constructed as part of the house. And I have a hilarious side story for you. This is my first experience with um, accent issues when I first moved here. So I just moved to Atlanta. I took a tour of Grant Park and the tour guide had a very strong Southern accent. And he was telling us all that there was a whale in the kitchen. And so, I mean, I remember thinking to myself, wow, a whale. I mean, is it to scale? Is it, do they have it on the ceiling? I just, and my ex-husband laughs because he goes, I could see your brain working and I knew that you didn't understand what he was saying. And thank God I did not interrupt him and ask him about the whale because when we went inside the house, I realized that it was a well, W-E-L-L, um, and I felt like an idiot. <laughs> so that house is always a little, it makes me laugh every time I drive by it. Um, but if you can, Around Christmas time, they do a tour of homes, and you can go inside and see this well. Now, Burns, the constructor of the house, Burns and his wife died in the home, and many people in Atlanta think the house is haunted. Crazy is that James and two random Civil War soldiers are buried in the side yard. Um, I can't remember who I was talking to. They told me that the owners of the house are very resistant to letting universities and kind of organizations come and scan the ground. So there's been no sonar scanning or whatever they do for cemeteries. So we don't know much about the people buried in the yard here. There's also St. Paul Methodist Church. This is at 501 Grant Street. And that was built in 1907, and then in the early 1900s, it was the largest Methodist congregation in the southeastern United States. So that was a big deal. But inside, there is an organ that has a funny story. So the Cotton States Exposition, held in Atlanta in 1895, they had a beautiful organ made by the Hill Green Lane Organ Company, and they did not want to pay the freight back to Chicago. So they sold it to the church for $500, and the church still has it. So if you can go in there and check that out, it's really cool. Also in the neighborhood is a place called Kelly's Grocery. It's not a grocery anymore, but it's on the corner of Broyles and Sydney. Uh, It was built in 1890, and it was built by Hyman Weinman, who was a Russian Jew, moved in with his family, 
turned it into a grocery store, um, I think it was 1914, and he ran the store for probably about 25 years. After that, he sold it, and they continued operating it, and then they sold it to the Kellys. That's why we know it as Kelly's Grocery. But while it was operating, it was the oldest continuously running grocery store in Atlanta. Another fun fact is that Mayor Hartsfield lived in Grand Park, and he shopped at the store very often. Now, last part I want to talk about Grand Park is the business district. So if you ever explore the neighborhood, I don't know if you can notice this, but um, there'll be, you know, residential, house, 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 and then a really small commercial structure just kind of thrown in the neighborhood. And there was no central business district in Grand Park. So the way that they did um, commercial buildings was like this, sort of scattered throughout the neighborhood. I love that. I think it's so unique when you see it. Um, because they didn't have a central business district, they ended up building it later. So if you want to sort of call this the center of town or center of the neighborhood, up on Cherokee and Glenwood is um, a bunch of cafes and restaurants now, but before it was Bell's Grocery. So Bell's Grocery is in the building that is now Grant Central Pizza. It was a dry goods store, so you would go in and they would measure out the dry goods into packets and you'd buy bulk. Kind of like what we do at Whole Foods now, which is funny. They also sold ice. I think they sold over 2,000 pounds of ice a day. They had live chickens. They would have meat um, butchered to your liking. And there was a gas pump out there as well. They also had two phone lines. So you didn't have phones at the time. If you had to make a call, you would kind of go down to, to the center of town and make a call. Across the street is a Masonic Lodge, uh, Grant Park Lodge number 604. And that was built in 1918, and then in 1934, they turned the back of it into like a temple theater. So that is my Grant Park story for you guys. I did not plan this, but this weekend, September 29th and September 30th, 2018, there is an arts festival going on called Flux Grant Park. And there are um, artists and installation projects going on that, from the website, want you to explore the inner workings of the park and the places you might not see. So I am going to try to get out there with my broken arm. So if you, if you see someone with a cast, it's me. But I hope you go and explore. I hope you've learned something. Like I always say, take photos and tag me, hashtag Archive Atlanta. I have some photos for you on the website as well, archiveatlantapodcast.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and have a great week.